Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Ivana Greco. Ivana practiced as an attorney specializing in qualified retirement plan advising and healthcare litigation until 2021. During the COVID-19 pandemic, she became a stay-at-home mother. In recent years, she's begun researching and writing on family policy. She's published papers with National Affairs and the American Compass, and she has she's working on a book coming out on the American Homemaker. She is also the Wollstonecraft Fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute. Ivana, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm so excited that uh, you responded to a random inquiry over Twitter. I, I am just so appreciative of folks who are willing to entertain uh, requests for late night conversations about interesting ideas. <laughs> I'm delighted. Uh, well, uh, before we get to uh, family policy and your, your research and all of that, um, tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, how did you get into practicing law and why did you leave? Uh, so I, um, let's see, so I, I went to college at Johns Hopkins um, and um, then I went to law school after that. Um, and I clerked for a couple of years. I worked for a judge in New Jersey and uh, then another judge in New Jersey. Um, and then uh, I practiced law for a decade. Um, and my um, primary focus uh, was on litigation, um, often healthcare litigation. We had a bunch of hospitals as clients. Uh, but I also worked frequently on um, retirement plan advising and um, advising employers on um, their benefits that they give to employees. So uh, highly technical, not all people are interested in this area of law, but it does have very good job security. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed doing it and I wor enjoyed working directly with clients. Well, it sounds like you had sort of the, uh, I mean, that, that sounds like a dream job in a lot of a lot of ways. I mean, I, I have plenty of friends who have aspired to something of that nature where they, they want to get into law, they want to be in sort of a niche field, and and yet you you made a move out of that. Tell us a little bit about that move out of out of practicing law. So yes, I really enjoyed my job. Um, I really liked um, my clients. Um, all of that was good, but I really missed my kids. Um, you know, law is uh, mm -hmm. a demanding profession. Um, it. Uh, it requires a lot of you. And um, even before the COVID pandemic, uh, like many people, I was having a really hard time balancing my obligations to my clients and my obligations to my kids. Mm. But during COVID, we just could not make it work anymore. Um, the schools around here were shut down for a long time. So I was trying to practice law with uh, little kids around and, um, you know, attending court hearings and being on client calls and having tantruming toddlers. And um, at some point in 2021, um, I just sort of threw in the towel and said, I'm, I'm not doing a good job by my family or my clients at the moment and um, decided to become a stay at home mom. Excellent. I, I I think that's just a fascinating. I'm always fascinated by the journeys people make in terms of their jobs. I remember my brother several years back was thinking about a career in law, and he he had an interview with a lawyer at my dad's church, and uh, I just he asked the lawyer like, "Are you happy in your work?" And the <laughs> lawyer got this look on his face, and he was like, "Yes, I enjoy the work, but..." And he went into all this other stuff about just how time consuming the legal profession really was. And it, that, that just stuck with me over the years because it seems like there's so many things that are admirable about a, a legal career. 
and yet there's a cost to that as well. Like it's it's really easy to get focused on, oh wow, you can finish law school and make a huge salary once you kind of get through your first couple of years. But that that there, there's a cost to that. And I I just find that very interesting. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, uh, law and parenting have a lot in similar. Your clients need you when you they need you, and that's not always during normal business hours. And your kids need you when they need you, and uh, that doesn't always correspond to exactly the workday either. And so those things can be hard to reconcile. Uh, well, it sounds like uh, your your move in career and life is paralleling your your research and your your current book project. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, the, the the book that you're working on. So I am working on a book about American homemakers, um, and uh, it has two parts. So the first part uh, discusses the central role that homemakers uh, played in American history. Uh, if you look at it right from the founding all the way up to the present day, um, homemakers have played uh, a really pivotal role in American civic life. Um, so just to give one example, uh, during the Revolutionary War, uh, homemakers were really um, pivotal in their support of the Continental Army. They were um, spinning uh, wool uh, to make uniforms. Uh, they were fundraising. Um, they were um, really integral to the success of the Continental Army. And we see this all through American history that when there's some sort of problem or crisis, mm -hmm. uh, it is groups of homemakers who um, come together to help address it. Um, so uh, I, I'm writing about that, but also how in the present day we've sort of forgotten that or dismissed that um, and uh, sort of understand the, that the have this conception that the only contribution a woman can make to the general society is by entering in the workforce. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's really short-sighted. Um, so my book tries to both explore that and um, present some policy solutions to make it easier for moms and dads who want to, to become stay-at-home parents. Oh man, that's really exciting. I think of, uh, that reminds me of two things. I remember one of my favorite scenes in uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart's movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is in uh, uh, George Bailey is off selling war bonds, but Mary Bailey is simultaneously patching up the house, taking care of the kids on a daily basis. And I think she's also working as a nurse uh, and and she's doing like all these other things, but she's doing exactly what you're describing. And I have trouble imagining that happening today just because it would pull people have all they've accepted all these other obligations. I love your focus on uh, not just sort of the stereotypical uh, women have to be the homemakers. I have a, a good friend who has a Ph.D. in classics and his wife is a uh, practicing physician and they just had their first baby and uh, he is. He made the, it made the most sense for their family for him to stay home and take care of their son. And so she's they just kind of have this inverted stereotype uh, and it works really well for them. And they're, they're both very happy in it. And it, it, it kind of pressed me a little bit thinking, oh, well, I had this sort of stereotypical vision of how this ought to work. But here's a picture of that working in a very different way. But it works really, really well. I think it seems like the key is one parent who's home kind of focusing on the needs of the home and the children and one parent who's kind of focusing on the economic side of, of family life. Yeah, I mean, you know, families uh, sort of um, make this work all sorts of ways. And um, I certainly am not looking down in any way on families that have two working parents. You know, I've been there myself. I get it. Um, and for lots of families, both parents need to work. Um, but I totally agree. You know, one of the great 
things about the 21st century is it's not only mom who can stay home. Sometimes for some families, it works better if it's dad. Um, and um, so I am hoping for policymakers to be flexible um, in recognizing that. Well, let, let's get to some of those policy kind of questions. Uh, I really want to, I'm really curious about your definition of family policy, because this is a, I, I went to the uh, National Conservatism Conference down in Miami last September, and that was the first place I'd really heard people use this phrase in a very serious way and really have kind of a, a clear vision of what they wanted the, the, the state to really structure for, to incentivize certain habits within family formation. And, but I've, I've heard that used in different ways. So how, how do you define family policy? And, and maybe if you could walk us through some of the various ideas that people tend to fit under that term. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, because family policy means very different things to different people. Um, so for some people, family policy is, look, let's get the government out of the way of family formation. And so they, those people would tend to focus on um, changing the tax structure, which currently disincentivizes marriage um, and other government regulations that they would say is, you know, preventing family formation in the U.S. And then for other people, they would say, look, family policy should really be focused on increasing the fertility rate in the United States, that we have a huge problem, there's not going to be enough babies in the future, and so that's what we need to focus on. Uh, for me, I would say uh, I'm not, I don't really see family policy as either of those things. Um, for me, family policy is more focused on supporting parents with kids or supporting people who want to have kids. Um, so it's affirmative government action uh, to support either um, parents of young children or people who are hoping to create families in the near future. Well, I'm sure we'll get into some of the more specifics about that here in a moment, but that it makes sense to me. There's a there's a sense in which the way that our, our governmental policies kind of structure society can either help parents or they can harm parents. I know uh, I had a, a friend who has, uh, he and his wife have five kids and in the middle of COVID when there were, there was a, uh, a child tax credit payout of the sort, man, they were, they were, there was a period of, <laughs> months where I think they were getting $1,500 a month and they were a family on one income with five kids and they had been, they've been scrambling for so long and all of a sudden their, their bank account was flush. And it was kind yeah. of crazy. Uh, but that, that certainly, that kind of, that kind of financial incentive can be very helpful. Um, are there downsides to leaning on government to incentivize family formation in that way or incentivize kind of pro, uh, I, I guess I want to say like pro children or pro natalist policies? Well, um, I think we don't know because we haven't tried it at a mass scale yet, but in general, um, I'm very sympathetic to those who would say any mass government program does have downsides that we find hard to predict in the future. Um, so for example, if we started paying people, um, you know, like $10,000 per child, for example, um, you know, some people have suggested baby bonds that would sort of lead to that outcome. I think it's hard to know exactly what outcome we'd get mm -hmm. from that. Um, uh, well, let's get to your, your article. Uh, that, that, that of course is how we, how we met over Twitter. I was, uh, I was really intrigued. Uh, this was published in the uh, fall 22 uh, edition of National Affairs. Your paper is entitled Reframing Family Policy. Um, now, you, you had some, some really interesting survey data I want to start with uh, from that article. Um, you argued that businesses particularly want to keep women in the workforce 
but you had a you had this different result that came out when when women were surveyed. What what did what did the survey data show about women in the workforce and parents in the workforce? What what do what do folks really want to be able to do? So uh, that's a great question. So if you ask mothers of young children what they would prefer to do. Um, more than half of them say that they would prefer to be home with their kids rather than being uh, at work full time. Um, so the preferences of young mothers in this country are really they'd like to be home with while their kids are quite little. Um, but as a country, we do almost nothing to support those preferences. Uh, so what what could we do? I mean, what what help help us imagine what what that would look like if if we had kind of businesses structuring for that kind of situation? Um, so I think there's things businesses could do, and then I think there's things that government could do. Mm -hmm. uh, so in terms of what businesses could do, uh, it would be just to support um, their employees who live on one income. So who have mom or dad at work and the other spouse at home. Um, I think the broadest area uh, that's ripe for uh, employer action is healthcare. Um, I did some surveys uh, while uh, writing um, that paper. And when I talked to people who live on one income, everybody talked about healthcare. And um, uh, this is sort of a general American problem. Uh, but I think what's not realized is that there's a lot employers could do to fix it because employers decide how much um, their employees pay for healthcare. Um, and the way that employers offer healthcare, this is a pretty technical point, but they subsidize healthcare for individual employees much more heavily than they subsidize healthcare for families. Uh, so if you are working for a business and you're getting healthcare through your business, which most, most people do, um, you're gonna be a lot worse off than if you were just an individual getting healthcare through mm -hmm. your through your business. Uh, so the employer might subsidize, let's just say, 23% um, of individual costs for healthcare, but will only subsidize 15% of healthcare costs for a family. Uh, so there's a big gap there and employers could do a lot to close it. Okay. So that would really kind of push, that would shift some of those costs over to the company rather than to the employer rather than to the employee in that case. It would, yes. So it would be an action that an employer would have to take because it thinks that it's in the best interest of the company. Uh, but employers uh, make moves like this all the time. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of ESG factors. Um, uh, these are sort of um, environmental, social, and governance factors that business take into account when making business decisions. Um, so sometimes, for example, uh, business will say, we care a lot about the environment. So we're going to make decisions that are environmentally conscious because we think it's the right thing to do. Mm. I think employers should say, we care a lot about oh, families. Okay. And so we're going to make decisions that support families because we think it's the right thing to do. Uh, and I also think that there's a business case for it. Um, I think that it would be a great way to attract great talent. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who are supporting a stay-at-home spouse are dedicated, reliable, enthusiastic employees. I'm certainly not saying to working families aren't, but, um, you know, I think these are often really good employees. And I think businesses should think more carefully about what family benefits they offer to attract people who are supporting a family. That's, I think that's really interesting. I and mean, it certainly could be a huge, that could be a huge benefit. Uh, I want to think, 
let's let's think for a moment about uh, the, those young moms and and really kind of that choice to, in the one case, be in the workplace and continue advancing a career, uh, maybe either a low-level kind of hourly wage career or a salaried career with kind of a clear trajectory. Um, and, and these moms, of course, are kind of facing a choice. Uh, do they do they continue in their career? Or do they they step out for two or three years? Those youngest years, those most formative years. Um, did your research show that the uh, work of mothers raising children their own, uh, like raising their children rather than taking advantage of childcare opportunities in those earliest years, does that actually have an impact on a national level? Is there stuff we can directly look at to say, oh wow, this really does matter on a national level if we have if we have moms not be raising their own kids, but instead putting them in daycare or in childcare situations? So there's not a lot of studies that show um, having your kids in daycare is bad for kids. However, there are quite a few studies that show having your kids in low quality daycare is bad for kids. And for a lot of families, that, that's all they can afford. Um, mm. So for example, um, the most uh, prominent example of this is in Quebec, uh, where Quebec decided that they really wanted to incentivize mothers to join the workforce. So they established a universal childcare program. Uh, and uh, it was very cheap to enroll your child in this program. And the program was successful in what it set out to do. A lot of mothers did put their kids in this uh, daycare, uh, but it was not successful in terms of the kids. Um, so it mm. did seem like the kids who went through this program ended up worse off over the long term um, according to a bunch of different factors, according to academic test scores uh, in the long, long term, um, in terms of their propensity to end up in jail, um, in terms of aggression. Uh, it seemed to be particularly bad for boys um, for reasons I think we don't really understand. Um, so um, I, I certainly would not say that merely putting your kids in daycare will hurt your kids, but putting kids in low quality daycare does seem to have a long-term detrimental impact on kids. Are there the kind of the flips, the flip side kind of studies that are looking particularly at um, uh, the, the, I don't even know what the control group would look like, but a, a group of moms who like raise their kids versus a group of moms who are in the workplace. And like, is there a way to compare those two different groups of kids over time and kind of see the, 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 the end results? Does that exist or is that just kind of a popular myth? I, I'm not aware of anything that's as targeted as you're saying. You know, in general, um, it, having your kids in very high quality daycare seems to be okay. Um, you know, it's, it doesn't seem like that has long-term negative impacts. Um, I'd say the, the, the people who may suffer the most is just the, the mothers who would rather be home with their kids and miss them and have to go to the workforce and miss out on those years of special memories. Um, so um, I don't know that that's been studied either, but um, we do have a lot of moms in this country who do want to be home with their kids and are, are at their jobs instead. Um, and you can't quantify that, but it's a real loss. Oh, sure. Well, uh, just maybe we have some listeners who are looking for a, a, a dissertation project and want to take on that <laughs> and quantitative study. And if so, please do shoot us an email at uh, optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. Let us know that uh, you, you, you took this uh, took this on. Um, 
can we go a little bit deeper into why uh, many families prefer to have one parent at home? Is this is this just a matter of kind of a a, a, a sort of a basic in, internal desire? Are there specific outcomes that seem to seem to flow from that, or is it just is this just a relational part of being a parent that you want to raise your kids? Like what what's all what's behind that desire? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not aware of studies that really break down what is going on here, but through interviews that I've done, um, you know, for a lot of people, it's just, it's basic, it's innate, it's, you know, uh, these are my kids, I want to spend time with them while they're this little, um, and those are days that I'll never get back if I miss out on. Um, I think we also see um, through the research that there are certain um, like demographics that especially prioritize having kids at home. Um, so uh, uh, Latino families in particular um, are uh, unusually um, pessimistic on daycare. They really prefer to have kids at, either at home with mom or dad or with um, grandma or grandpa. Um, so um, for certain um, ethnic groups in the U.S., um, there's also a particularly high priority on having kids raised at home. Um, and I can sort of speculate as to why that would be. You know, some, some um, ethnic groups have a really high priority on family relationships. Um, and uh, having kids at home helps strengthen those bonds. Um, but that's just speculation. I, I, I don't have data on that. Sure. Um well, I wonder if we could, you mentioned the price of, of high quality healthcare, or not healthcare, I'm sorry, high quality daycare, uh, childcare options. Um, that's sort of something I've heard plenty of teachers talk about. I mean, it's it's a pretty common phenomenon that uh, we'll have teachers who uh, after the second, usually about the second child, there starts being like, is it worth it for me to be teaching? Because teaching, of course, is an infamously low salaried profession. Uh, but by the third child, it's like, oh, wow, my paycheck is basically it's actually less than the cost of childcare for three kids. And so families will start to make that choice. Um, where does economic class come into this story and how does, uh, yeah, just let me, let me just leave the question there. Where, where does economic class come into this story? Uh, so excellent question. And um, the surveys are very clear that middle and lower class um, families strongly prefer um, to, have their kids taken care of at home rather than in daycare. Um, so I think part of that is the price of daycare. Um, but I think part of it also is that um, they don't have quite the same relationship to their careers uh, that upper class um, parents do. Um, so if you look at the surveys, um, the only group that prefers to have two uh, full-time working parents taking care of the kids as opposed to some other arrangement, you know, a part-time working parent or one parent at home. Um, that's upper class um, educated elites, essentially. And, you know, that makes sense. Um, they've invested a lot in their education. They've invested a lot in their careers. Uh, so they don't want to take time out of the workforce to take care of their kids. Um, but that's not the case um, for any other uh, socioeconomic class in the United States. I'm, so I'm wondering if that then contributes to also maintaining levels of wealth and status for those that upper class family because they're if they're they're kind of making that choice in the current in the status quo if the choice is a say a a uh, a sales VP for a tech firm and a a physician couple uh, if they're going to both work and then 
they're they're maintaining that income that allows them to stay at a certain economic status whereas a middle income family might decide no we're going to have one parent step out of the workforce for three years and we're going to pinch and scrape and scrap and we're going to make this work but then maybe three years later that secondary income comes back uh, but there is a there is an income loss there that 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 could lead depending on different circumstances could could be to the economic harm of that middle class family. Certainly. And, you know, I think the other thing we see is it's these upper class families that really want the two income um, families and almost all of the policies we have in the United States are shaped towards their preferences. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, they want to be able to work full time and they've been pushing employers to make that easier to support um, employer funded childcare. They want uh, government funded childcare, um, but they're kind of unique in those preferences, but they still have been very successful in convincing government and businesses to shape the world around what they prefer. Well, let's let's go to those. Uh, you mentioned some business policies that are some employer end changes that could be made earlier. Let's go to some of those governmental changes that you outlined. Uh, and, and please do feel free to be, go into as much detail and as much technical description, because <laughs> uh, I, I will confess, I, I, I had never heard of Social Security earning credits before I read your paper. And that that may That's just probably be a blessing, Josh. <laughs> I, it probably is. I'm, also, in my 30s, I have a I have a few decades where I need to know the ins and outs of how Social Security works, if it's still there in 25, 30 years. Uh, but but walk us through. Uh, you you outlined at least uh, three areas where we could have policy reforms on a government side that could uh, create different incentive structures: uh, Social Security earning credits, 401k policies, and family insurance. Uh, walk us through your thoughts on those and what what's possible there. Sure. So I'll, I'll start with the 401ks because those are kind of the mo most straightforward. Um, so I'm sure you and your listeners, um, your viewers know what 401ks are. You know, everybody who works at a job has uh, probably access to a 401k or a 403, 403b plan. Um, and so uh, this is a major way that people save for retirement. Um, but if you're married, um, you can only save in an individual 401k account. So Josh, if you've got a 401k, it's in your name. It's not in yours and your wife's name. Um, and uh, these individual retirement plans make it really difficult for families that have stay-at-home parents. Um, so uh, I'll just take the example of my husband. He's got a 403b plan. Um, unless I ask him, I don't know what he's invested in. Uh, I don't know how much money is in there. Um, the amount that he can contribute to his 403b is uh, less than how much we could contribute if I was working also. So the uh, you know maximum deferrals are less than the two of us could have deferred together if I was working as well. And you know, God forbid he dies and I'm left a widow, um, and I'm not familiar with his investment choices. It's going to be hard for me to take over that plan and really understand what's going on there because I don't, I don't, you know, have access to it on a regular basis. Uh, so what I've proposed is creating a family 401k plan. Um, so under this plan, um, my husband and I would own title to his retirement savings plan together. Um, and the amount that a family could defer into this plan would be the same as if um, there were two 
uh, as if I worked also. Um, so the idea would just really be to equalize um, what's available to two working families and make it open to uh, families that have a stay-at-home parent and also make it a lot easier for the stay-at-home parent to understand what's going on with the money. Um, you know, this might be controversial, but in my opinion, uh, a family with a stay-at-home parent and a working parent, the stay-at-home parent makes possible the working mm -hmm. parent's earnings. And I think we should recognize that as a society and that they should both have title to that money. Oh. I think that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I, I think the, uh, there, there's a, there's a, there seems like there, there's something there about the, uh, if, if, if we're, if we're on a stereotypical model and the wife is home, the husband is working, um, we, we've made several moves over the last century to say that women should be able to own property. They should be able to do all these things. Um, that same, I mean, like that, that makes perfect sense to me that, that she also needs to have access to investments and, I, mean, I, I think you're, I'm thinking through my school's 401k plan. My wife and I both teach and we both have separate retirement accounts, but we're hoping next year that she's not teaching. And that, that is a retirement savings loss that in the system you're describing, I could hypothetically, I could double my, I could double mine and, or, or increase mine beyond the current cap. And yeah, that would, that would be really interesting. Yeah, and also uh, this is another area where then employers would be able to step up and support families with a stay-at-home parent. Um, I don't know if you get um, some so sort of employer match mm -hmm. or employer contribution, but it would also make it possible for employers to um, match recognizing that there's a spouse at home. Um, so uh, make a greater match because you're contribute you're deferring more money into the plan. Well, that makes a lot of sense. How about either social security earning credits or family insurance? Okay, let's start next with social security credits. This is pretty technical, um, but is good information for anybody to know. Um, so uh, social security retirement benefits um, are paid out um, when you reach your social security retirement age. Um, right now for people retiring around now, it's, it's around 66 and a half, but it's probably gonna be um, later when you and I are retiring, Josh, unfortunately. Um, and the way the payout is determined is social security looks at your earnings over your entire life. Um, so um, it assigns a certain amount of credits for each year you've worked. Um, there is a maximum amount of years that they look at. Um, I think it's 35, although I'm not remembering exactly right now. Um, but the long and short of this is that women who step out of the workforce to uh, raise kids um, are um, penalized under the current social security system. So they'll earn less credits because they haven't been working. And when they come to the end of their working life and go to retirement, they will collect less from social security because of the time they've taken out of the workforce. Um, so what I have proposed um, is that the government give childcare credits um, for the social security retirement calculation. Um, so um, I'd like to see the government offer three years of credit um, for um, each child that a woman takes time out of the workforce to care for. Um, and I think this would be the government really recognizing that raising children 
uh, is good for a family, but it's also good for the rest of society. Uh, it's kind of trite to say, but without kids, we don't have a country. And um, I'd like the government to really step up there and um, recognize that fact. And this would help ensure that that women or men who who stay home to take care of their little kids um, don't don't come to retirement um, and not have enough money to retire comfortably on. Okay, that too makes sense. What what is this idea of family insurance? Is that the same thing as health a the health care plan we we're talking about earlier, or is this something different? No, this is um, disability insurance. Uh -huh. um, so there's two kinds of ways you can get disability insurance in the United States. Um, one is through the government and the other is through your employer. Uh, so if you're a stay-at-home spouse, you have no employer. Uh, so you don't have any employer-sponsored disability insurance. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, your spouse's employer could offer a type of insurance that would support the family in the event you become disabled. And so you might say to me, Josh, well, you're not working. Why does the family need uh, insurance coverage for this? But, you know, if mom is a stay-at-home mom and she suddenly becomes disabled, the family is going to have all sorts of costs. You know, they might have housekeeping costs. They might have childcare costs. Um, there's going to be a lot, actually, that they're going to need to cover. Um, if a stay-at-home mom or dad is becomes disabled. Um, so I proposed that employers work with insurance companies to create a new product that would help insure families with a stay-at-home spouse um, in the event that the, that stay-at-home spouse becomes disabled. Uh, so that's one bucket. Uh, the other bucket is um, government um, disability insurance. Um, it's called SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance. And like um, Social Security retirement benefits, it's keyed to your working years. And if you're not in the workforce, you don't get it. And if you've been out of the workforce too long, you also don't get it. Um, so what I would propose is basically a fix to cover moms or dads who's taken time out of the workforce to ensure that they're still covered by SSDI in the event that they become disabled while they're out of the workforce taking care of little kids. All three of those sound very practical. I mean, they're they're you've obviously thought through the details of each of those, but they just they they seem they seem relatively straightforward to implement. Um, what is there a is there is this a concern of either major political party in the United States today? It is not. Um, I, it is well. That's not entirely true. There is a little bit of movement around. Uh, Social Security retirement credits, um, and that is mostly on the Democratic uh, Party side, um, but there's not a ton. Um, and I think it is a real shame that um, neither political party, but especially the Republican Party, is not um, stepping up uh, to support families that want to have a stay-at-home parent, although I think this should be a bipartisan issue. <laughs> Uh, there are so many, this is out there with so many other things that seem very straightforwardly bipartisan to me that we ought to be able to just recognize it is common sense that the work of raising children and making a home is of huge, enormous uh, societal benefit, and it is something that we ought to recognize as such. And that, that should not raise partisan rancor, but obviously that, that's, that would require a different po uh, political life than we currently have. Um, I wonder if we could shift gears just a little bit, because... Uh, I was when I was reading your paper, it took me back to a fascinating conversation I had at the National Conservatism Conference, 
where I met a, uh, a guy from Hungary and he was telling me all about the family policy uh, structures they put in place in Hungary. And uh, he was describing, uh, it just kind of blew my mind. I could not imagine a government that would actually do this. Um, he described, uh, I forget if it was after the second child or the third child, but after a certain number of children, women no longer pay income tax, uh, where uh, if you get married and I think when you get married, you get a, there's like a $50,000 loan to help a couple buy a house. And if you have children within a certain window, that loan is completely forgiven. It's already super low interest. He even described something like a, uh, a government subsidy for one of those like giant homeschool vans. Or <laughs> uh, just like, if you need to buy, a, I forget, I have a friend who uh, a couple years ago who had to, I think they were up to six or seven kids in a town in Michigan. And they, he, he bought this like, he, it's, it, it's like a small RV, but it's a, it's a single, uh, single person van. Um, and he was describing all of this. And I was just really curious about, about your thoughts on, the long-term effectiveness of those kinds of policies um, are, could those, and obviously those are all geared towards reversing Hungary's negative uh, fertility rate. But then, uh, so what is, and this, this, please feel free to go beyond what your data suggests here. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm asking for opinion and speculation, uh, but what are your thoughts on the long-term effectiveness of those kinds of policies? And would there, could such things be effective in the United States context? So first off, I'm just going to mention that I homeschool and I always know when I've arrived at the right spot for a homeschool event based on the size of the vans in the parking lot. Yeah. If they're very big, I know we're at the right spot. Um, but um, more seriously, looking at Hungary, um, I think, you know, the Hungary's policies are very interesting. Um, it doesn't seem like they have shown to be, have long-term effectiveness. Um, so they do seem to have sort of temporarily boosted Hungary's fertility rate, but very much TBA on what effect they will have over the long-term in Hungary. Um, I also think that they're very unlikely to be implemented in the United States. I just do not see the U.S. government at any point, um, you know, paying out uh, large amounts of money for women who have five kids, for example. Um, I just think that is not in the cards. Maybe I'm too cynical, but I, I think that is very unlikely. Um, however, the thing I love about Hungary's policies and I would love to see adopted in the United States is this recognition that family is important, that children are important, that society cannot survive without family and children, and that a major focus of government has to be on how we support families. Um, so in the United States, this is going to be done in an American-specific way. Um, it is not going to be done in the Hungarian way. Um, and that's, you know, that's just how it is. And I, I think that's actually probably for the best. Every country is different and has a different culture and a different way of approaching problems. Um, but I think Hungary is absolutely right in the focus um, that it brings to the family and the focus that it brings on making sure that parents are able to have kids and raise them the way they want. Love that. I, I think you're absolutely right about the the American specific way that might be applied here. Uh, now, I, I do want to break in because we have a first on the optimistic curmudgeon where a, uh, a live stream listener on LinkedIn has sent in a question. So uh, here's, okay. a, here's an unexpected question. Uh, what is the funding source for the additional coverages? Would this require cut, cutting other programs, raising taxes? 
I think that's referring specifically to the kind of that might be referring to the disability coverages or some of the other um, pieces you were speaking about earlier. Yeah, so for a lot of what I've been talking about, um, there's not going to be um, tons of extra cost. Um, well, the, the employer would have to voluntarily agree to pick up the cost. Um, so there would be extra costs, but not to the government. It would be an employer decision um, to, to sort of pick up the tab here. And um, as I said before, I, I think there's a real business case for why employers should, should seriously consider that. Um, in terms of disability insurance through Social Security, uh, there would be some cost to that, but there's not that many women uh, or men in their reproductive years who become disabled. Um, so the cost there it, uh, would be pretty minimal. Um, we'd really just be fixing a hole that impacts a really tiny percentage of Americans, but really, really impacts them when it does. Um, so um, I have um, uh, talked with a family where the mom did become disabled and it was just devastating for them and they could not get government support. Um, they had no employer support and it was really difficult um, for them. Um, so that would be sort of low government cost, but really high reward for those very um, limited numbers of families who need it. On um, the Social Security retirement benefits, that would be um, expensive. There's no question about it. And um, we need to reform um, Social Security anyway. Um, the, you know, we, we're headed for real problems there. Um, but on the other hand, um, I would think of it this way. Social Security is built um, to only survive if there are young people paying into the system. And part of the problem that we're having with Social Security is um, there's not as many young people um, available to support um, the boomer generation in the country. And the problem is just going to get worse with America's declining fertility rate. Um, so if you take the really broad view of Social Security, making it possible for people to have children actually ensures the longevity of the Social Security system, because it is only designed to work if people have children who then grow up and enter the workforce. If that does not happen, Social Security collapses within one generation. Um, so I would encourage policymakers to take um, to step back a little bit and, and think about how Social Security is structured when they think about whether or not to support families with little kids. Well, thank you for uh, for taking our listeners or our viewers question uh, there, Ivana. Um, uh, one other uh, kind of random curveball question as we wrap up towards, towards the end. Uh, you, you mentioned the uh, Republican Party ought to kind of embrace this in a way. Um, I'm personally very much hoping that uh, Ron DeSantis makes a 2024 presidential uh, run. I'd be very excited to uh, if he did if he did so. So I just want to uh, toss you a hypothetical. Uh, if you happen to have dinner with uh, presidential candidate DeSantis as he's putting his family policy platform together, uh, what three policy changes would you urge him to make as the uh, in this area as the head of the executive branch? Uh, well, the first thing I would encourage him to do is just to talk about the subject, for goodness sakes. You know, um, we get radio silence so often from politicians on this. And um, I think if he were able to speak um, to the need to support um, families and support families with little kids and particularly families with stay-at-home parents, 
um, that would be great. You know, there's been some chatter in the Republican Party about being the party of parents. Um, but if you look at surveys of the Republican base, um, many of them want to have mom or dad at home and the other parent in the workforce. And if he could say, look, that's a thing that government ought to support, that would be amazing um, uh, to get some like real concentrated um, affirmation from a politician that government should be supporting um, families with a stay-at-home parent. So that is number one. Um, the second thing that I would really like him to do um, is think about um, how healthcare can be reformed um, to support families with one parents, because that really is, um, like I said, if you talk to families with a stay-at-home spouse, that is like, it's healthcare, 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 healthcare. Um, and so uh, this isn't a policy proposal that I have discussed, um, but I do think that that is the major area um, where uh, a national politician would want to um, concentrate his energy. And then the third would be making it easier for families with um, a stay-at-home parent to retire. And so um, I think the two policy proposals that I've discussed based on both Social Security retirement cr credits and creating a family 401k would be really fruitful grounds there. Um, and are they're not, these are not um, sort of like huge, um, complex uh, policy changes. They're, they don't require, you know, establishing some new massive government bureaucracy. You know, they're, they're, they're small, but they could make a big difference. Which is the kind of change, at least uh, I, I think we could make and could be good. Uh, I, I'm not in favor of brand new bureaucratic endeavors. I think we've, we have plenty of examples <laughs> of uh, attempts to start new bureaucratic endeavors that just multiply problems. But uh, I do think it's possible to have small changes that take our existing structures and make them a little bit better for, for the average American citizen. Um, so, uh, and... I want to go back to where we started. Uh, we, we talked at the beginning of our conversation about uh, uh, you kind of reached during COVID. It was pretty evident that uh, you saw this as an either or choice and, and you chose uh, to, to be home with your family uh, for this season. Uh, we're now on the other side of COVID, Lord willing. Uh, hopefully it's never coming back and we're never shutting things down or going back <laughs> to school. Uh, but um, two years after two years later, uh, when you look at that, do you? Uh, Feel free to answer this however you like, but uh, do you think you made the right choice and are you happier where you are or do you think you want to eventually make a move back into the workforce? Uh, I absolutely made the right choice. It has been the most tremendous blessing to be home with my kids. Um, we had a third child recently and um, I was talking to my husband and I said, I just I'm so grateful I don't have to send her to daycare. Um, I remember when I dropped both of my older sons off at daycare, it just felt like the world was ending. And I know not everybody has that reaction to daycare. And, um, you know, it's always so hard to talk about work-life balance because you never want to criticize people who've made different choices. So this, sure. this is in no way to say that, you know, there's anything wrong with putting your kids in daycare. But I just felt like my whole world came crashing down when I had to leave my kids at daycare. And it has been such a blessing to have the ability to be home with them while they're little and to know that uh, with my daughter, I'll be home with her too through those those early years and get to see her first steps and hear her first words and just be there for it. Um, it just, you can't put a price on that. 
Ah, very true. Well, Ivana, thank you so much for uh, the conversation tonight. Where can people find and follow your work online? Uh, so I am on Twitter. I am at Ivana D. Greco um, at, on Twitter. Um, I have a Substack called um, uh, The Home Front. And um, uh, those would be the, the major two, two places. All right. Well, we will be sure to link to the homefront.substack.com. And hopefully, uh, maybe maybe a couple of our listeners are intrigued and want to follow your work. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do that there. Uh, well, Ivana, thank you so much for joining me tonight for uh, this conversation. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Ivana Greco, a former lawyer, now researcher and writer on family policy alongside her homemaking career. If you like this episode, please do leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.